Hello and welcome to the Steps Minicast. I'm Marcus De Silva. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. Today we're going to talk, we're going to give you four stories in our usual roundup for the Steps Minicast. And today we're going to be focusing in on the fund management industry and how honest it's been about the value it's providing customers. We've also got the ever-consolidating share-dealing services, the platforms industry. I'm also going to be speaking about competition in the EU, as well as Michael Bloomberg and his eponymous company and what he plans to do with it. So let's kick things off with these newly appointed assessment of value statements um, that fund managers are now producing. What's this all about? Yeah, I'm going to be honest here, uh, Marcus, it's not probably uh, bedtime reading these documents. Um, (laughs) They they aren't uh, the most fascinating reads, but this is interesting because this is the fund management industry's response to the regulator who said uh, in their review of the industry that they had to publish a document which told investors if they were getting value. Now, what is value? Well, it's quite a lot of things, actually, but it comes down to quality of service. Are the funds themselves performing? Are they being uh, priced properly? You know, Are the charges reasonable? And are fund managers passing on the economies of scale that they get when a fund grows? Do they reduce the charges accordingly? Who are the players that have published so far? Yeah, three players so far that we know about. Uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Vanguard, the US um, exchange traded fund business, and Rathbones, which is a sort of more uh, traditional wealth manager stockbroker. But all of these guys run uh, funds in one shape or another. Hargreaves Lansdowne is interesting because they run some fund of funds. So these are uh, funds which invest in other funds, basically. Um, and they've been uh, in the press a lot lately because of the impact of the implosion of Neil Woodford's uh, fund, his UK equity income fund. And it transpires, of course, that that fund is in some of Hargreaves' own funder fund um, products. So when they've done the assessment, what's happened is when they've looked at the performance of those funds, the Woodford effect actually has been quite... Uh, uh, are quite powerful and actually they've underperformed other similar funds in the marketplace and they also found that they're quite a bit more expensive to buy than other funds in the marketplace um, you know Hargis are charging uh, 1.26% for example on their growth and income fund uh, the market's charging about 0.8.9 for a similar other funds so it is a bit more expensive uh, than average. So they're saying they're not good value? Uh, well no uh, they're not saying that at all in fact the board um, of Hargreaves Lansdowne and I quote said at this time we believe these funds continue to offer value for money based on all the factors we have considered so it has sort of raised this question of whether asking the industry to sort of mark its own homework, in effect, is a is a good idea. Um, I mean, my view is that you know, I, I suppose at least at one level, given that the industry has sort of never looked at this kind of concept of value before, never been asked to define it, never thought about it, it's actually quite helpful that the fund management industry is now being compelled to do so and actually having to publish their findings so that investors can make a, their own minds up. You know, is it um, a, a good thing or not? Okay, let's move on. What else has been happening in the world of share dealing platforms? Yeah, big busy week this week, really. Um, so um, Interactive Investor, they're the second biggest platform after uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, just been talking about. They've announced that they're going to buy 
the Share Centre. It's a rival platform for £62 million. Uh, and this is interesting, really, because it comes really quite quickly after the uh, the Interactive Investor Group bought Alliance Trust Savings, another platform, and TD Direct, another platform. And all together now, when you put all of that group together, they reckon it's going to be about 14% market share. Um, still a bit of a bit behind Hargreaves Lansdowne, the leader at 40%, but nonetheless, uh, a, a growing proposition nonetheless. What's the impact? Well, for shareholders, so people who own shares in the share centre, I think they're going to come out okay. They've been offered a mixture of cash and shares in Interactive Investor at a premium to the share price for the, the share centre share. So they're, they're probably uh, quite happy about that. Um, the customers of the share centre, well, jury's out. I mean, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's almost certain that Interactive Investor will change the way they charge people at the share centre for the services that they provide. They are on a sort of similar structure at the moment, so they both charge a monthly fee. But inevitably, I would have thought Interactive Investor want to consolidate all that into one set of fees, which, depending on the kind of trading that you do, may be positive, may be negative. D- difficult to say. But price isn't the only thing that people look for when they're looking at a shared platform. Absolutely right. It's not. Um, services is, is as important and price, in my view. Uh, what's going to happen, of course, I suspect, is that Interactive Investor won't want to continue to run two web platforms. So again, there'll probably be almost uh, certainly some consolidation of the of the platform. So that will mean change for, for share center customers. I mean, overall, though, the question is, is it a good uh, move for the marketplace? You know, at one level, you've got uh, the argument that there are fewer players, uh, that means less choice and that's bad. But to be honest, the reality is, and, and this is where I would uh, I would come down, is it, you know, the reality is it's really hard to make money out of a, a share-dealing platform. Um, so actually a smaller number of bigger, stronger platforms means more security for their customers and actually is a good thing. It's quite a commoditized service anyway as well. So It is. I mean, you know, it, the, the all of these platforms provide a transactional service. It's all it's all yeah. the same. What they where they differ is the sort of bolt-ons um, that come that come with it, the level of kind of other stuff that they provide, the service and the help and guidance and all that sort of stuff. So it is um, it, you know, it, it is better to have uh, uh, security in the, in this in this space in my view. Okay. Thank you, Simon. Okay, well, you mentioned um, uh, in the intro the uh, this this whole point about competition in the the EU. Um, it looks like uh, the US tech firms are getting uh, getting into bother again. What's the story? Yeah, so the EC is sort of back again as this unlikely role it's sort of assumed on taking on monopolies and trying to sort of drive competition. And it's saying that platforms such as Facebook and Amazon need to start sharing non-personal data, so anonymized data, in order to help innovation and startups they've come out and they've said look data is important for innovation it's for our society as well you know you think of things like how you can personalize medicine for example here you know it it's a really necessary thing for this kind of information to be available Um, and if the car industry do it and banks have to do this why on earth not tech firms Good question. Why not tech firms? Well, the truth is, is they're, they're very powerful and the US hasn't really taken them on properly. And it's hard to get them to do things that affect their dominance within their markets, you know. Um, and the fangs are, are probably a good idea here. And what I mean by fangs is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google. It was a term originally 
coined back in 2013 by a, a commentator called Jim Cramer. So actually, Google's now Alphabet, so it doesn't quite work. But the point is, is that this group of, of five companies has a combined market cap, so a combined total value today of about $4 trillion, which if it were a country by that, you know, and that was its GDP, it would be the fifth largest country in the world. So you can see why they have a big clout on governments when they're employing vast quantities of people in certain countries. They're over certain issues. They, they actually have a lot of power. And the EEC's position, it seems, I think in a bit of a, a policy inertia, a bit of a vacuum within Washington at the moment, is to become very active on antitrust, which is dealing with the competition, driving competition, breaking monopolies. And it's because it's realised that as a market with 500 million people, um, as a market that is, that is um, responsible for a quarter of Facebook and Google's revenues, it can't be ignored. So if it makes a statement on something, if it pushes on something, then um, it can become a globally adopted um, thing, really. Um, and the big person here that's, that's really bashing heads is this uh, wonderful Danish politician called Margaret Vestager. She's a competition commissioner. Um, she was appointed back in 2014. Um, and, and she's really been going after them. Is she popular? Uh, like in Europe, yes. She's getting stuff done and, and, um, and changing things. In the US, no. She's got obviously Trump's um, irk has, has, um, uh, has been received and, and she, uh, because of this focus on US tech firms and the fact that it seems like Europe is just ganging up on US tech firms. So to give an example, in 2016, she got Apple a, a fine of 13 billion for unpaid taxes with its dual taxing in Ireland. In 2017, Google got a fine of 2.7 billion for antitrust. Um, Amazon has also been fined. So it does seem like she's got her sights and Trump has said in his sort of normally crass um, assessment of things, she hates the US more than anyone else. Um, but I think it's really good for innovation, for competition. Um, it's stepping in where maybe individual smaller governments couldn't. Um, and, um, you know, Miss Vestager's workers, it might be upsetting the big boys, but it's important. Okay. Um, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, uh, richest man, one of the richest men in the world, uh, becoming increasingly important in politics as well, and has been in finance for years. Why, why is he in the news? Yeah, so he's might be selling Bloomberg LP, of which he owns 88%, if he wins the presidency of the US. So he'll put it into a blind trust and it'll be sold. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, he's been on the campaign trail. He's another billionaire seeking the top job. And he, you know, in the, in the ownership of this um, majority ownership of this company, um, it's a very important company. And it's quite interesting that it might be sold. It's the biggest financial data company in the world. Um, and it's, it's everything. It, it, what it is, is everything that, that people need, uh, that investors and traders need in order to trade financial instruments. So it's all the, all the bits of information, graphs, and it, it, it comes in the form of a terminal that looks slightly weird. There's white keyboard and very old, almost 80s style graph and, and tables. But it's, it's important within finance. How did they become so dominant, though, in the first place? Yeah, so he, he launched it in 1981. It was right at the beginning of this big boom in Wall Street. And back then, um, you know, technology was just way, way behind. Um, you know, uh, so Mike Bloomberg started as a bond trader. In bonds, you often um, use something called a yield curve. You plot the yield curve, and it basically looks at um, the different interest rates for um, a particular bond over, over different time 
um, frames. It's called the yield curve. And you would have done this by hand. And then Mike's terminals came along. With a pen? Yes, with a pen, wow. piece of paper. You would have plotted it at the beginning of the day. It would have required some specific skills as well. Um, now, you've got a computer piping you a graph that updates all the time. You know, so it was a revolutionary change right at the beginning of financial instruments getting more complex, right at the beginning of markets becoming more complex. So it was just perfect timing. And now almost every trading floor, well, not almost every trading floor and every fund manager will have one of these terminals. So it's 320,000 customers. Each of them is paying 20,000 a year for a terminal. So you can do the maths. And it's why Mr. Bloomberg at 88% of the company is worth about 50 billion um, uh, which would be big. And I think what's particularly interesting is that if he sells it, because it is so big, because it was so dominant in its market, there's almost no strategic buyers. This is what the FT was saying. There's no strategic buyers who would naturally buy this and, 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 um, in a merger type thing. So who then emerges as the, as, the, um, as the buyers? It would need to be some sort of consortium that would be able to afford its likely massive price tag of around $60 billion. Yeah, well, one to watch um, and see where that uh, ends up. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today on Steps Minicast. Uh, check out content on the Steps website and, of course, uh, on our YouTube channel. Otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thanks. Thanks.